Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Electric Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Warson. Today's conversation is about the changing landscape in the retail market, the impact it's having on land development, and how retailers and developers are repositioning themselves for success. To learn more, I'm joined by Jamie Tate, founder and president of Tate Economic Research, a commercial real estate advisory firm based in Toronto. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. It's good to be here. So earlier this year, I was at the Land and Development Conference here in Toronto, And one of the sessions I attended was about the retail market. Mm -hmm. And in the conference program guide, um, it described that session with language like retail market in flux and retail market being turned on its head. And then one of the presentations made reference to the expression retail apocalypse. (laughs) So tell me. Why is the retail market being described in these ways? Well, I think the main thing, Jeremy, is it, it makes for uh, great headlines. Uh, <laughs> retail apocalypse is one I've seen, uh, I've seen quite a bit. And I think what's happening is there's certainly dramatic change going on in retail. Um, but certainly the, uh, the wording of, uh, of apocalypse seems to be a bit of a stretch for me anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, it is a headline grabber and there is significant change going on. And so what's the source of that change? What's, what's driving that change? Well, the biggest thing that we're seeing in, in retail is the impact of e-commerce. And so it, it continues to grow, continues to change, and continues to impact all forms of retailing. Uh, and no signs of slowing down. I think where we see the wording of, of uh, comments like retail apocalypse, uh, the impact, I think, is vastly overstated, uh, especially in Canada. So that's what we're seeing, and that's what I think has been uh, the, the impetus behind the headlines. So how is e-commerce impacting? Is it just that traditional retail is being replaced by um, the giants like Amazon, or uh, is there something else at play? Well, that's probably the biggest, the biggest factor affecting retail is, the, uh, is that the dollars, the dollars are relatively fixed. And so as Amazon or companies like Amazon, uh, and there's quite a few, there's Alibaba, there's Wish, there's, there's all sorts of them that are online retailers. And as they take more and more of the retail pie, uh, the pie's not growing fast enough to allow the other retailers to continue to grow. But in a, in a real general sense, what an analogy I like to use is um, is to compare Walmart's growth, Walmart being a traditional retailer that's grown and become really successful. So in the last 10 years, Walmart has grown by about 3% a year, uh, which, you know, in, in terms of population growth is about 1%. So it's, it's growing. It still is growing. Uh, nowhere near the levels it used to grow at. But Amazon in that time has grown uh, about 80% a year on a, on a compounded basis. So they're up 800% and, uh, and Walmart's up 30%. So certainly that kind of growth is, uh, is terrific impact. And, and Amazon is the one that is, the, uh, is looked at as the leader in the industry and, and the largest impact on retailing. So, well, how is e-commerce um, doing in the United States compared to Canada? Um, maybe that's where this retail apocalypse 
uh, terminology comes from. Oh, sure. From. That's, I think that's a big part of it. I, the, the U.S. experience is different. It's different um, from the base of bricks-and-mortar retail. Uh, simply put, uh, the U.S. has a lot more retail space than Canada does. So on a per capita basis, there's about two-thirds as much retail in Canada as there is in the U.S. So it sort of has further to, to fall, if you will. Um, the other, the flip side of that is also the success in the market penetration of e-commerce, which is higher in markets like Great Britain, Australia, and U.S. than it is in Canada. So Canada's is lagging behind in terms of the penetration, plus is in better shape in terms of the amount of retail space. So why is it doing better in those countries as opposed to Canada? There's a there's a lot of different factors I think that influence it. Uh, one is the difficulty of delivering to a Canadian marketplace. I mean, we have a dispersed population. Population. We have a huge country with not a lot of people. So that's one of them that's just as simple as is that physicality of it. The other is that we're since we're adjacent to, to the U.S., uh, a lot of companies are looking at, uh, at North American retailing and excluding Canada because of the difficulties of serving the market. So be that, be that uh, shipping and be that labeling and uh, taxation and all those sorts of issues. So there's a challenge that relates to the marketing in that uh, Canadians are often being forced to use American websites to do their shopping, which come with accompanying increases in uh, exchange rate and, uh, and um, delivery fees, which, which nobody likes. Mm-hmm. So what are good examples of traditional retail that have really been negatively impacted by uh, the likes of Amazon. Oh Alibaba. gosh! Uh, well, there's certainly quite a few um, in the Canadian experience. Most recently, uh, two of the real big ones are Sears, and uh, um, Sears is one in particular. Toys R Us is another one. And so, when we see retailers like that, um, there, there's a number of different factors at play, and uh, one of them is is certainly e-commerce. There's no doubt about that. The other is is the um, it, we call it the diversification a dichotomy, um, the bifurcation of retail in that the, there's a high line, if you will, the, the upper end of merchandising that continues to do really well. And there's the low end that continues to do really well. But it's those ones in the middle. And if you look at examples like Sears and Toys R Us, those are perfect examples of stores in the middle. So certainly e-commerce uh, has had a big impact. I think Toys R Us in particular is one of those one of those models that you could look at and say, well, they just didn't adapt, and the uh, the presence that they had online, the way they operated their stores, um, just hasn't kept up. And the same with Sears. So, those are uh, are real strong examples of how things mm. have changed in Canadian retailing. Well, that was going to be my next questioner. How are retailers and malls responding to? to both compete with the likes of Amazon uh, and embrace e-commerce technology so that they can succeed? Or how could um, Sears and Toys R Us have done better with e-commerce technology. Well, there's there's a there's so many different ways to to evolve and to adapt, and I think what's happening is that retailers are slowly but surely adopting. And one of the things that is, it, it's a very simple concept, but it's it's a strong it's a strong concept to understand, and it's it's referred to as omni-channel retailing. Omni-channel meaning, uh, in real simple terms, is that 
providing the customer the opportunity to buy something whichever way that customer wants. So in the old days, your store was open, say, you know, nine to five, and uh, it was closed on Sundays, and maybe it was open late on Thursday. But when it was open, that's when you expected the customer to get in their car, drive, and make the purchase from you. Now that customer has the opportunity to sit at home if they want on their home computer, to buy from their phone, to do it while they're at work, to do all those sorts of things. Um, and I think that that's really changed the way that retailers have had to approach things. So it's a fundamental shift in a mindset, a paradigm shift as it's referred to. And I think that's really, really important. So recognizing that there's a bit of a shift in power and a consumer now has a lot more power than they used to. And that is especially relevant when we start to look at things like price comparisons and brand loyalty and, and so on. So certainly retailers are adapting. Um, I think real strong, real strong uh, indications of that success has been the increase in, in the, uh, the, the, the pickup, uh, the order online and pick up in the store or pick up at the shopping center, what Smart Centers has done with their, their penguin pickup the click and collect as it's known at stores like Canadian Tire and Loblaws. So again, you're shopping online, but you're also coming to the store. Now, whether you actually go in the store or not is a different thing, but um, it's a bit, of a, a bit of a combination. But again, it's that sort of adjustment, recognizing that if that consumer wants to be at home, making their grocery list online and then buying things online and just zipping in and picking it up, then you have to be able to provide that. And I think that's, again, re- representation of that shift that we're hmm. seeing. Okay, well, let's get into a little bit more of a, a standard kind of retail experience, at least for a lot of consumers um, uh, in, in our urban markets, and that's the big box retail, which was all the rage, it seems, um, years ago. Um, are, I'm just wondering whether new big box store developments like Smart Centers and, and Rio Cans, are they still happening, um, or is that model past its prime? Well, it's really interesting. I think in a general sense, the model, if you will, it's sort of in terms of product life cycles, and you can look at the growth of uh, main streets, the growth of shopping centers, the growth of power centers, and say, okay, well, those are going down, and then we're seeing e-commerce increase. So it's a bit of a life cycle like many other products go through. So certainly the big box retailer, I mean, what we're seeing is smaller versions of those big boxes. So stores like um, like Walmarts, like uh, Canadian Tires, like big supermarkets that used to be uh, anchors to these major developments are much, much smaller now than they were, say, 10 years ago. So granted, they're still large stores, they're still big footprints, but they're you know half the size of and what why they is were that? before. Uh, I think there's a few different factors at play. Uh, one, I think, is a little bit of a consumer revolt, which the idea of shopping in a 200,000 square foot store. I mean, that, that's, there's Walmarts that are almost five acres in size. Right. I mean, that's the store itself. That's crazy to think that somebody wants to walk from one end of the store to the other store or to the other end of the store. But um, that was the model that was built. And uh, so there's, there's that aspect of things. Certainly, as we get into, especially in urban markets, we get into land values and rent um, going up so high that uh, that operators have become more efficient and more effective in, in smaller spaces. But uh, so there's there's market forces as well as consumer forces at play there. So what is then the future for big box retail? I'm, I'm thinking stores that don't survive, um, maybe like Target, for instance. Um, what what 
takes their place. If they, I mean, certainly for these enormous stores, like you were saying, Walmart, uh, and I have this image in my mind of of uh, abandoned Walmart stores in the United States. Yes, yeah. You know, what what yeah. takes uh, place uh, of those large stores that are really tailored for these? really large uh, scale retailers well there's there's been um there's been it's really interesting the the redevelopment of stores like uh like target for example and so what target target some of them were taken over by other retailers like canadian tire and uh loblaws um most of the stores ended up getting subdivided into smaller units so we see as certainly in my business we see a lot of sort of similar uh, redevelopments of target space so we see things like winners and home sense and sport check and dollarama and giant tiger um, uh, we see supermarkets we see general merchandisers we see liquidation places so there's there's the subdividing of that big box which in some cases has been really successful and actually generates a lot more traffic than oh is the, that right the, yeah oh definitely a benefit to the center uh, in terms of, of customer attraction w- one of the things we're seeing that I think is of uh, particular interest is is this dichotomy between uh, between shopping centers or these vacant big boxes that are within the gro- the sorry within the green belt within the urban areas and those that are outside? So if you're outside, um, there's opportunities for perhaps retailing as retail, but that's about it, and that there aren't a lot of other uses. Whereas if you're inside in a more urban area, like in the city of Toronto or one of its suburbs, um, we're seeing the redevelopment of the anchor space, the former anchor space, um, in all different forms, where it's residential uses is one thing that's coming up, uh, office uses, community uses, um, self-storage uses, um, but a real wide range. But certainly the opportunities in within the green belt in the urban area relate to the market economics for the ability to adapt to other uses. Well, that was going to be uh, actually a follow-up question. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, I know that RioCan, uh, which is one of the big retail developers, they recently sold its portfolio of um, smaller market properties across the country and really to focus on the six large cities yes, in, yes. in Canada, including Toronto. Um, and they seem to be embracing this this new model, this mixed-use model, um, where they're teaming up with residential developers, um, office developers, to kind of create a little bit more of a dynamic, exciting destination. Um, so is maybe you want to elaborate more as to why RioCan and possibly others have, have chosen that path. Is, is it because of what you were saying before, that the, the market has changed and they need to respond accordingly? Yes, I think that's absolutely it, Jeremy. Like what I think is happening is again that focus, uh, RioCan's focus, which they you know they came out publicly and said this is what we're going to do. We're going to divest our shopping centers that aren't in these major markets, and then the ones that are in the major markets, we're going to focus on for other uses. And I remember the CEO of RioCan commenting that they had figured out that their shopping centers they're treating them as land banks, which is really just an asset that you sit on and you wait for an opportunity to come along to redevelop it. So I think that was a a real game changer 
when that was said publicly. And I think now we're seeing all, many other developments. I think that in an urban market uh, such as a Toronto, um, there isn't a single uh, shopping center that hasn't been looked at for its redevelopment potential or its intensification potential. So we're working on a number of different ones for different different developers and the range of uses um, is amazing. I think when we start to see things like the proposal of uh, Agent Court Mall in Scarborough, which has got um, right now is an enclosed mall from the late 60s, um, a Walmart and a no-frills store, and the plans are to keep the retail component, the smaller retail component, but to add residential and the number of units is about 5,000 units. So the value of that of that center is certainly not as an enclosed uh, retail center. It's uh, it's a place to build condos. So on. when did this trend start? Was it just a few years ago? Or it's it's been- fairly recent, certainly. I think uh, I would say we've been back about 10 years in, in Toronto. And Toronto is a little bit of, uh, of a leader in this in this uh, area as compared to the other cities in Canada, uh, with the exception of Vancouver. Uh, so again, it's it's a result of land values and land values changing so dramatically, um, and it's made other uses more economic. And it used to be the case where retail land uses, retail, real simply put, from sort of land economics 101, retail land used to be worth more than residential land, and it no longer is. And when did that change? I'm gonna. It depends on the marketplace, but roughly five years ago. Okay. That was a bit of the flip, and that's changed the way people plan and the way they look at at real estate. And so to buy, to look at the opportunity for an underperforming retail center and to see that field of parking and think, well, that shouldn't be a field of parking anymore. That should be uh, townhouses or that should be stacked towns or that should be mid-rise or ultimately it could be high-rise. So that's what I think is happening in terms of the, the value of properties and the implications for redevelopment. And that model where you're using the example of agent court, is that um, is that happening throughout the GTA. Oh, absolutely! It it amazes me. Uh, we're looking at a project in Oakville. We're looking at a project in Ottawa. Uh, certainly, everything in between. Uh, again, the idea that if it's not this year or the next two years, it's ten years or it's it's something like that down the road. But the idea of of what else can be accommodated on that parking lot is uh, is 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 throughout the industry now. And the examples we're seeing in, in Toronto be, be that things like Bayview Village or Galleria, um, certainly throughout in terms of uh, you know the, the diversity of the projects and the diversity of the uses. And it really comes down to density and the ability to add uses to it. So retailers, I guess, traditionally have looked at just retail on lands that they've owned. Right. They do, they do right. own. Uh, and now we're talking about throwing in a new mix of uses, residential, pos- or possibly office, mm-hmm. commercial, whatever. Um, do the retailers now need to um, embrace a new mindset or do they typically just want to partner with a residential developer or an office developer and let them worry about it? What what is the what's the kind of approach now that retailers are are gravitating towards? Well, I think the approach from the retail developer perspective is um, to recognize that 
these assets exist and to realize that they've got this potential and to start to develop. And I think when we see companies like Canadian Tire, um, like Loblaws through their REIT, Choice REIT, and companies like RealCan that are talking about partnering with residential developers. So the, the recognition that the asset is there, that the land is there, and that there's opportunity for it, and from a the, the owner perspective to go down the road of starting to design the the plan and design the project, um, but ultimately to get a residential developer to come in and build it. And I think that's a model that has worked in the past. I, I would expect, I mean, we can see the evolution of, uh, of retail developers be bringing that expertise in-house, and I'm, I'm convinced that's what we will see in the near future. So I'm thinking actually now Choice REIT, um, which is, um, I'm thinking of Dundas and Bloor, not far from where I live. There's a big plan to redevelop a very large site that they own along with lands owned by the Catholic School Board. Um, this is Choice REIT, which is uh, Loblaws, you know, grocery chain, but they really have to think about residential. Um, so is that all done, that all that strategic thinking, is that all done in-house or again, are they partnering with Oh, that's, that's a perfect example, Jeremy. So that's one that Choice is, is doing their own planning and their own development design work. Uh, what they are planning to do, as far as I understand it, is uh, develop an entire community there in terms of different uses and open space. And they've gone out to the community and held all sorts of, of great engagement exercises with the community. You can actually go on site there and they've got space where you can walk in and provide your commentary about what you're hoping to see uh, get provided there. Uh, but again, that would be an example of a, of a company that has recognized they've got this value, they're going to start to plan for it, but the actual building and development of the of the units will be something different and done by somebody else. Um, I want to just bring back, I'm thinking retail apocalypse, but there's also <laughs> a term called ghost malls. Yes. Um, yes. Ghost malls, you've, we've all seen pictures on the internet of Malls are just abandoned, you know, with weeds growing through and um, everything's vandalized. Uh, again, I think yeah, something great that Great for we, the zombie movies. Great for zombie <laughs> movies. Um, uh, I think it, it, it takes place. It's happened in the United States. It's, I think it's happened in China as well. Um, is that something that we see here? Has it ever happened here? And is it something that we... We could see happen here. Well, it's it's something that is again way more prevalent and and much more of a risk in the U.S. than it is here. But that being said, uh, there are a couple of examples of centers that are uh, certainly. Um, on their on their very last legs, and uh, I wouldn't want to pick on the uh, the actual uh, the actual owners and municipalities that they're in, but certainly there are there are malls that have lost their department stores, and the supermarket on the other end has decided to close too because the traffic's simply not there. So there are examples. What what's happening is they're the ones, as I said before, about the um, you know there's there's sort of this dichotomy in that there's within the green within the green belt and, and outside of the green belt. So if you're outside of the green belt with a with an enclosed shopping center, uh, certainly there's some element of risk because par partially if you can't refill that space with retail space, there may not be the demand for the other uses, which is sort of the back. Like the, residential. Exactly, office, yeah, right? which is happening in the, in the the uh, within the green belt. There is that demand, uh, but it doesn't exist certainly to the same extent on the uh, when, once you get further outside of the GTA. 
So just out of curiosity, why do we see them in the United States? Um, a big part of it is overbuilding. Um, a big part of it is the, uh, the planning process and the approvals process is very different or was very different in the U.S. than it has been certainly in Ontario, but in Canada. And so the, the opportunity to have built and the way things are financed in the U.S. was very different than here. A big part of it as well is the consolidation of retail chains. So there, there were so many department store anchors, for example, and those department stores have disappeared. So once they disappear, uh, if they get bought by a parent company who's also in the mall or is in the next mall down the road, well, they, they don't get replaced. So it's a very different thing. But a lot of it comes back to that that concept. There's just a lot more retail space in the U.S. than there is in Canada. And they're still sitting there, abandoned, um, adding blight to a local community. Uh, it, it's it's really too bad. Oh, there, there's some amazing examples of how uh, cheaply you could buy a shopping center in the in the U.S. Uh, and again, just because it's it's almost worthless, and uh, and the costs and the risks of uh, you know maintaining a derelict property is it's it's hard. So from that suburban, maybe not necessarily rural, but um, outside the Greenbelt kind of context to a more downtown intensified um, urban environment, department stores. Uh, we saw Sears, which is um, right downtown, that had that closed for reasons you explained earlier. Is the downtown department store, is that something that really only caters to a, an upper end um, kind of buyer? Um, I work downtown, and I'm seeing now the Nordstroms, Saks. There's Holt Renfrew on on Bloor. They seem to be doing okay. Bay, the Bay is doing all right. But I'm just wondering whether the that the, the kind of the traditional department store is still something that can thrive in a downtown urban environment. It's a it's a great question, Jeremy. It comes back to I think the uh, what we refer to as the missing middle. And so that's the idea that the, the high end and the low end are seeming to do quite well, uh, especially in the Canadian context where you're right, we're seeing Nordstrom's and Saks come in and operate and expand, uh, whereas we saw Target, which would be a middle market uh, retailer, come in and, and just, you know, well, it's a terrible, terrible situation what happened. And there's a, a, a big variety of reasons. But I think the idea that there's this uh, high end and the low end is, is a real key to what's driving not just department stores, but retailing in general. So what's the answer? Is there an answer to help bring in that so-called missing middle? You know, I think that right now, uh, certainly the stage that we're at with consumers and their preferences, uh, I think there used to be a real negative uh, stigma, if you will, attached to what we would call value retailing. So when we see things like the tremendous growth of a chain like Dollarama, which is up to 50, over 1,000 stores now, and uh, um, the idea that, that you would see the, the sort of the quotation I'd seen before was, you never saw a BMW in a Walmart parking lot, and now that's that's uh, that's not an unusual thing to sue at all. So the idea that uh, you know there's there's this uh, ability to choose where you want to shop, and uh, even though you may be able to afford to pay more for your merchandise, you would you would choose to to be at this lower end retailer, and I think that's prevalent throughout all different types of retailing. Okay, so we're talking a lot about the, these large retailers, either in big box or big malls. I want to I zoom into more of the finer grain um, retail, and that's sort of the mom, mom and pop shops. 
Um, there was a story in the Toronto Star earlier this year about a big uptick in store vacancies in the in the Toronto Beaches neighborhood. Yes, I remember it. Yep. And the locals um, were not happy about it because it meant an impact to their healthy mix of retail along the main street. Um, and that healthy mix of retail is what defines uh, the neighborhood's unique character, um, giving it a sense of place, a sense of community, and healthy sense of neighborhood vitality. So uh, what I found interesting is while it's common to see store vacancies in undesirable neighborhoods where demand may be relatively weak, yes, yeah. uh, I found it interesting that a highly desirable area like the beaches can also face problems of, of rising store vacancies, uh, mainly because of soaring rents. So is this a symptom of Toronto's own success? Are we going to see this kind of... Uh, this kind of uh, situation spilled to other neighborhoods? That's really interesting. Um, certainly what's happening in a, in a number of the retail strips and the beach is a great example is uh, is this vast increase in, in, well, not just rent, but occupancy cost, which, which is mainly influenced by property tax levels. So in Toronto, that's a big, that's a big part of, uh, of cost. And, and it wouldn't be unusual to see property tax and rent being the same amount. On a, so from a retailer perspective or the ability to control your costs, some of it's out of your hands and you can't negotiate, you know, that sort of thing. So that's really difficult. But the other thing that's happening in downtown, uh, downtown Toronto, which is spreading out throughout, uh, throughout the city and, and to other areas as well, is we're seeing a tremendous growth in the amount of people that are living in the in the downtown and so there's there's this tremendous increase in uh, expenditure expenditure potential dollars that are in the marketplace and so where are those dollars landing and how can they be attracted to the local strips is certainly a, a key issue and we're seeing we're seeing problems certain certainly just to be really direct about it problems for mom-and-pop retailers uh, and their ability to pay the rents that can be commanded by the landlords part of it is the landlords now have to ask for these big rents because they've paid so much money for these properties um, a lot but does of does it make sense for them with their store vacancies well I think eventually what not even sorry not even eventually but in the near term we're going to see a shift that the supply curve and the demand curve if you will are going to are going to cross and they're going to get closer because vacancies don't serve any purpose um, there are some implications that relate to property tax but uh, in a general sense as a, as a landlord you want your property to be to be occupied uh, I think there's some element of holding out and waiting for the uh, the next major chain that's going to come and is going to be able to sign up for five years and pay the high amount of rent that you're asking for uh, and that's what we're seeing with some of the independent retailers that have to uh, that, that have to close up shop or relocate and ultimately we're seeing a lot of shifting of, of, uh, of operations too so if you're not on that main street maybe you're going further west and Queen Street West is, a, is the is the perfect mm, example prototypical right. example almost of of uh, how Queen Street West as you are sort of closer to the core of Toronto uh, became successful and the chains popped up and uh, the retailers started moving further west and now you get further out towards the Ossington part of, uh, of Toronto sort of two kilometers three kilometers from downtown and it's now sort of the up and coming in terms of restaurants and in terms of fashion so yeah but those areas are are doing well I mean right. there aren't a lot of vacancies and I right. guess this whole notion of vacancies in a desirable neighborhood I guess what you're saying is that eventually um, the market will respond 
maybe landlords will have to adjust their um, their anticipated rents and, and lower them a little bit in order to accommodate. Um, or, as you're saying, they just wait for a bigger uh, chain or a bigger um, retailer to come and, and meet the needs that they have. But in the meantime, uh, you have a neighborhood that's that's lost a little bit of that vitality that I talked about. Sure, yeah. Um, and so... I thought that was a very int- I, it was a bit of an eye opener. I, I don't I, I don't frequent the beach as much, but I thought that was a really interesting situation, um, and uh, and hopefully that doesn't spread to to other areas. What what can a local community like the beaches do to to kind of slow down that that trend? Well, Toronto um, in particular has been really successful with um, with their BIAs, their business improvement areas, which um, with many of many of which do a fantastic job of marketing locally and promoting. Um, I think, in a general sense, what we're seeing with the the competition, the changes in the marketplace, like the e-commerce and and the different different uh, big box retailers and so on, um, we're seeing that the the mom and pops have to do things differently and have to be more more focused on customers. And uh, there's there's a lot of things that are really really important that can be offered by local retailers that are that are just not available in big box stores. And I've got a great example of a local retailer it's near me I'll give them a plug it's Dixon's <laughs> Dixon's hardware on Avenue right. Road and uh, and they uh, they sold me a barbecue and then they followed up that was in the in the late summer they followed up in the spring with a with a little card that said uh, hope you're enjoying your barbecue by the way we offer tune-ups and there's other supplies if there's anything you need come by and and that sort of thing and that's not what you get at Home Depot sure. you know so there's there's those sorts of things that I think are are very very important and that's the ability to differentiate and I think that's really really important when it comes to uh, local retailing um, well that kind of leads into the final uh, range of questions this this term experiential retail uh, I, th- I hope I have that right you do yes. Um, and that seems to be a new trend I think with with some uh, companies uh, I work at Young and Dundas and at the base of our building there's this new store uh, Samsung um, for their for all their products, but I'm told that it is, it is an experiential retail environment, and um, maybe you can explain a little bit more about what that means and and what's the business case behind it. Sure, uh, in a in a general sense, um, experiential would be uh, the the intent to provide something different to make sure that the customer wants to come into your store it even extends beyond the store to the whole shopping center and it goes back to the logic of if that customer can buy your product without coming into your store why would they want to come in your store you know is your is your store on their to-do list of errands or is is it a destination that they want to come to so when you go into a store like that Samsung store you're referring to um, today for example uh, there's a um, there's an autograph session with uh, with Raptors there, and so that of course is not directly related to selling your the latest phone and the latest tablet uh, and the other Samsung products. But you, it's the idea that you come in and you see the latest and greatest. You've also got uh, service people there that not only can inform you and educate you, but uh, help you and ultimately upsell you from the retailer's perspective into what it is that you need. But a real big, a real great 
point about what what's happening is is you you need to give people a reason to look up, which is you know get up get look up from your phone and look around, and you have to provide something that's that's either entertainment or education or inform informative at some level, but give them a reason to come into the store, and that again goes right on to the whole shopping center. So what is it? And if that's entertainment, um, you know what is it that they're providing that that can't be provided at at home? And when you start to see things like that you know a huge lineup to get an iPhone 10 and so you know there's still that element of that's that's for some people anyways that's entertainment uh, and there's you know I'm, I'm the first one in line I've been waiting here for however long to get this phone and that's great and but I think when you start to see the success of the retailers and the restaurants and uh, the other entertainment venues that are being able to capitalize on providing a destination that's really a big part of the the experience and so is it about um, the design, the interior design of the space that draws someone in, or is it just having celebrities signing autographs and being there uh, on certain occasions? What? Yeah, I think it's 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 a it's just it's a balance. It's it's all different parts of it. Design is a big part of what's happening now in retailing and the the innovation, especially when it comes to technology, and what what you're able to do in a store that you weren't able to do years ago, and uh, things like virtual fitting rooms and trying on things without trying things on is is really interesting. I think there's also there's an element of the experiential. That is is really best uh, best indicated by online stores that have opened uh, physical presences now. So there's bricks and mortar stores, and so some of them are are fairly straightforward. Things like uh, like uh, Frank and Oak or uh, Indochino, which are, are clothing stores. Um, so. What, they were successful online and developed their businesses. And yet when they open a store, their market penetration increases dramatically because, again, there's a segment of that market that wants to come in and wants to, you know, touch it, feel it, and, and maybe learn about it or get some advice, which you can't get online. So that that's a bit of a twist. And, again, when we start to hear retail apocalypse and so on, well, this is the exact opposite. It's online retailers that are that are now coming in and opening up a physical presence, again, providing the customer what they want, how they want, and when they want. Hmm. What about pop-up retail? Is that is that also something that is a new trend? Is it a is it a maybe you can explain what it is? Sure. Um, sure. But also, is it is it something that's here to stay, and we're going to keep seeing these kind of pop-up retails, or is it just something to? That's a fad that uh, we're seeing right now. Well, I think it's uh, so. Sorry, so pop-up retail is uh, is a short-term use that goes into an existing space, a vacant space, typically, and it's uh, really beneficial in terms of building awareness or building. Uh, knowledge of a new concept that's coming and uh, although it's not a good example of what have target for example open pop-up stores before they came here but there's examples of uh, of um uh, a real funny one in my mind is In-N-Out Burger. Did a, so it's in a U.S. burger chain that is no plans to come to Canada at this point, and yet they came and opened pop-up stores. It was a bit of a teaser. Exactly, yeah. So it's brand awareness and that sort of thing. But from the perspective of a shopping center owner or a developer, uh, it's, a, it's a great thing because it, it gives somebody a reason to come into the center. 
And so the idea that it, it's temporary, it provides some sort of sense of urgency. So it's let's get in there now while we can, because it may not be there next week or next month. Or uh, And that's great in terms of generating traffic. But again, it's part of the experience. I think now as, as retailing changes dramatically, an experience becomes much more important. And part of it is simply led by social media too. I mean, the idea, like if you're, if you're waiting in line to get your iPhone 10 or you're waiting in line to get to the In-N-Out burger, or the shake in that case, um, you know, you're taking a picture of that and you're putting that on your Instagram or, or whatever. And that is the best thing for building a brand and brand awareness. So there's there's benefits to everybody. And certainly from the retailer perspective, uh, it generates traffic. And you, you'd want to be that the, the one who's next door to that pop-up shop for sure. <laughs> so final remarks from you. So based on all that we've just talked about, um, what's your crystal ball outlook for retail in Toronto, say 10 years from now, or maybe further out? Well, certainly we're going to see change. We're continuing to see change. I think we're evolving uh, greater at greater speeds than we've ever seen change in retail. I think we're going to see more e-commerce. We're going to see more adapting to e-commerce. I think the uh, the retail apocalypse, although a great headline, is uh, again vastly overrated. And so I think that we're going to see the success of shopping centers, the major shopping centers. Uh, I mean, they're still waiting lists to get in. They're they're wildly successful. The sales. Which perform- ones, for instance? Oh, Toronto Eaton Center, Yorkdale. Uh, you you. There's no vacancy. There hasn't been for for years and years. And to, to there's a, there's literally a lineup of tenants to get so in. So what? Just on that. Why mm-hmm. why are those two malls and I don't know whether you would add Sherway sure yeah absolutely I was going to add Sherway so why would those three malls do so well and and others not so well is it just because they're in relatively affluent neighborhoods or or, or are there other reasons there's there's all sorts of them there's a real confluence of factors and um, simply one of them is is back to the old real estate adage of location 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 so they're in good locations uh they are of the scale, the magnitude that allows them to be a draw to attract customers from well beyond Toronto. So that's a, a bit of an entertainment and a bit of a tourism function. Uh, I think one of the real keys is that there are places to, to see and be seen. So new concepts that come to Canada, for example, and there's been 50 over 50 new concepts came to Canada in 2017. What do you mean new? What do you new, mean new, by new, new retailers? Okay. New retailers and new brands. And so they need to be at the premier locations. And so that's locations like the Toronto Eaton Centre, like Sherway Gardens and like Yorkdale. So they're the cream of the crop and they're they're world renowned for ex- being successful shopping centres. So we're seeing that we will see the continued success. We're also going to see serious intensification at locations like uh, Sherway, which we're already seeing. And Yorkdale, uh, which again is becoming more and more dense in terms of its parking and, and the footprint of retail, but but other uses are being investigated too. So um, we're going to see the mall change and become much more of a, of a 24-7, 365 kind of environment, uh, not just a shopping center, that's for sure. So are you excited about the oh, future? Oh, absolutely. I think it's a, it's a tremendous time for growth and for change, and it's really exciting to be a part of it. Hmm. This has been really interesting. I, I learned a lot. Uh, I thought I knew something about retail, but um, this has been terrific. Um, well, that's great. Thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Jeremy.